building relationships and leveraging technology to do so and being, you know, the, the longer term that you can think, the, the more successful you can be. People, wh whoever thinks the longest term can, has the competitive advantage. So if you, if you think about doing a strategy that won't pay off for a long time, it likely is a very powerful strategy that you just have to stick with and, and know that it'll pay off. This is the Yield Coach Show, Season 1, Episode 26. I am your host, Ian Brown, where every episode we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, and inspirational guests ready to open up, share their story, the good, bad, and ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. Very excited today to have Rob Beardsley. Rob Beardsley is the principal of Lone Star Capital. Rob oversees acquisitions and capital markets for the firm and has acquired over $300 million in multifamily real estate. He has evaluated thousands of opportunities using his proprietary underwriting model, and he has published the number one book on multifamily underwriting titled The Definitive Guide to Underwriting Multifamily Acquisitions. Rob has also written 50 articles about underwriting, structuring deals, capital markets, and he hosts his own Capital Spotlight podcast which is focused on interviewing institutional investors. Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Great to have you. Yep, excited to be here. Let's do it. Let's do it. So um, Rob already knows this. I will, I will let the audience know. I am in physical possession, holding it up on camera now. I have Rob's definitive guide to underwriting multifamily acquisitions. And in Coach Brown layman terms, it's a nice, succinct guide to an Excel underwriting model um, for valuing multifamily and it's it sounds simple, right? Rob writes a book, has a model, but uh, and this is in my opinion. And I go back 16 years, and I started in commercial appraisal, where we had to jump into everybody's Excel models. And it's always a mess. What Rob has done is really consolidate and simplify and streamline what was a cobbled together, somewhat Frankenstein part of the industry, um, and give and he gives you his Excel model. And you purchased this book for, I don't know what I paid, very, not a lot, 15 bucks, 16 bucks on Amazon, and it will be to your door in a day or two. So um, I'll let Rob talk more about his background, but I, I am a user of his Excel spreadsheet and his book. Uh, with Rob, how about a little bit of background, sir? Yeah, sounds good. I greatly appreciate that introduction. Uh, my background is I grew up in Silicon Valley, California. My parents ran a residential brokerage firm from home, so I had exposure to the real estate industry just through seeing their business. They only did single family, so they bought and sold homes for their clients. They did construction development, fix and flips, but everything was on the single family side. And it wasn't, at the time, particularly interesting to me. Uh, it wasn't until I went to school for computer science that I <clears throat> just, through my own research, had stumbled upon multifamily, and it, it just resonated with me a lot more. I love the scalability of it and the more long-term nature of it rather than like a fix and flip or chasing a brokerage check on a, on a residential home sale. So really took to multifamily, uh, joined a mentorship group, met my business partner in the mentorship group, and we together formed Lone Star Capital, which today focuses on owning and operating Texas workforce housing. And uh, we've been you know, really successful in growing a team and, and scaling up, and it's been a great journey. And uh, you know, big big part of the journey, as you've pointed out, is is the book, which has been a big success and has been a great way for us to 
grow our network and that, which is which is critical in this business and how did you go from like your background into the into your undergrad studies into so immediately grasping you know the nuanced dynamics of underwriting multifamily um could you help me bridge that gap a little bit because it's really an excellent work product Thank you. It is. It was really a function of learning on the job. I think that's the best way to learn, and so I, and also just the passion and the, the energy that I put towards it because that was where I, I started and where I wanted to focus. I am a numbers guy, and so to understand the multifamily business, I really wanted to drill into the underwriting to know how the how the ins and outs of the numbers, how the deals work. So. Starting by underwriting the first deal, then the second, and then after hundreds of deals, and then getting feedback on those deals from investors, brokers, lenders, all that feedback really helps to to learn and learn the nuances and gain perspective. And and then as far as the model is concerned, it's just gone through so many iterations where. You look at so many deals, you start to to understand, oh, well, things usually work like this, and it's more helpful when you have it organized a certain way or maybe set up a certain way to save you time uh, just based on repetition and also through feedback. Uh, mm-hmm. You show investors, and they have their take on things or their feedback, and you can take that, implement that. So at this point you know we've underwritten well over a thousand deals and that experience has really refined our our process wonderful and i do have some personal connection there it's i started in commercial appraisal and you have to jump in and out of asset class a lot of times you need to be able to work with other people's models at least at least to some degree and then you're going to take other people's information getting it into your model sometimes you're going to run with another model and spot check it um and i did a lot of that in my um, mid to late twenties and invaluable. I think that just so the audience knows, Rob is absolutely correct. Flipping a home, um, doing like a single family rental, even two, three, four units, you know, it's mathematically not that, not that challenging. Um, and you have a lot of control. You could make an error and make up for it. You know, like, like Rob said, his parents were building homes, flipping homes, you know, you might be able to overpay under, you know, cut some costs here or drive rent there. You make an error on a 200 unit acquisition of any significance, it it might not be able to be remedied or undone. So, um, you know, some of these, you know, Rob earlier said, I'm a numbers guy. Well, I think for the people in the audience that want to own larger scale multifamily, it is it is a business you need to know your numbers i would encourage people to you know work with guys like rob or invest with rob but um it's something you need to take seriously if you're going to try to sponsor or gp a project um you know your assumptions have to be tight they really do um all right well i digress for a second all right rob uh back to you so um the, the model's been out it's been a great success it's been thousands of uh, well thousands of deals run through it with many many iterations um it reminds me, my concentration in appraisal, I became the hotel guy. So I had this Excel model that, and I was a history major. So I'm, I'm a history major. I get this this hotel um, Excel. It had so many tabs and so many cross-references and macros. Um, <laughs> it took me a long time to learn it. But eventually, I had it down, and it was like when the Matrix, when Neo just sees all the numbers just floating in front of his face. So eventually, it made sense. I felt really good in the model. But I have a lot of respect for 
what it takes to get, you know, as a professional, you got to commit to, if you want to be a multifamily investor of any kind of scale, you've got to learn these models. And, and Rob just made it a lot easier for everybody that's listening with his book and Excel model. Um, so Rob, you got a lot of assets under management. I don't know if the three, if the 300 is still accurate, but that, that's what was on your website. Tell us about um, kind of how you got there and, and where you want to go. So we started out wanting to do bigger deals or for what at, at the time felt like bigger deals. So I'd say we, we jumped in with, with a pretty big first deal, uh, which was about $16 million, 260 units. And that was definitely a big challenge, a big learning experience. And from there, we, you know, our goal was, just, was to continue to do deals. And we didn't do another deal for almost a year. So it showed that we were patient. We were still kind of figuring it out. And we also were still timid or uncertain about our ability to raise capital because that really is the bottleneck for most people. And once we started getting more deals done, more track record, and the marketing side is all, was also starting to pay off, then we had more confidence in our ability to source deals because we had better relationships and, and reputation in the market. And then also we had better relationships with investors, so we had more confidence to actually get our deals closed. And that's where we really started to gain some momentum. But then COVID hit and that held us back a bit. We took a pause and didn't really have any activity there. So coming out of COVID into 2021 uh, and for the last year or so, it's been very good. We've been very active and really, for the most part, firing on all cylinders, uh, which, which has been really awesome and it's, it feels really good, but it also opens new doors or presents new challenges where we're seeing, oh, wow, you know, doing two, three deals at once is, is really challenging. You have to be organized and you know, new challenges emerge. So that's, that's mm -hmm. good to see. And those, those are obviously critical to overcome and build the right process and teams to do so. Uh, and then we have a new challenge in the market today, which is just the market is a bit frozen. People don't really know where value is. Lenders are all over the place. We don't know where the Fed is taking us. So uncertainty, it really hinders the transaction business. So right now, like most people were, you know, looking at a, a certainly a slowdown in contrast to all, all we've done. But yeah, that's a long way of saying that, it, you know, it, it's been a bit of a bumpy road, like, like for everybody else. It, it's, uh, it doesn't feel like it's happened overnight, even though it's relatively a short period of time, it feels like we've definitely put in the work and built our, our, our team and business over time. And our goal into the future, uh, specifically, for 2023 is to acquire 350 million in acquisitions. Uh, you know, that's definitely a big goal. In the last 12 months, we've closed on roughly 300 million. So it's definitely doable to do it in a calendar, in a year's time, but we can't force it. If the market is kind of frozen the way it is now, which I don't anticipate it to be all of 2023, but you never know. And so you can't just, you can't force acquisitions. If, if the deals aren't there, you have to be patient. And that definitely is a, a potentially a unique factor of our business. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things you said that I, I took notes on, you know, you're correct me if I'm wrong, your first deal, $16 million. Is that right? Yeah. You know, and you know, to me, that is, that is 
staggering and impressive. I know you're a New York man, so I mean, you're am, am, ambitious and everything's big, but um, so did you have to go out there and raise uh, back of the envelope like four plus million bucks for that deal, your first deal? Yeah, yeah, we went out and raised uh, 4.4 million, yeah. and it was very challenging. I mean, we pretty much fell flat on our face compared to what we expected would happen. You know, we thought, well, we'd put a good deal under contract, and then the money would kind of raise itself. It wouldn't be too tough. But you know, we really learned that raising money, obviously you need a good deal, but it's not the end-all, be-all. It doesn't, doesn't solve your problems. And we went into full-on money-raising mode, trying to uncover any opportunity, partner with whoever we could. And uh, that, that it, it was just due by necessity which is fine. It's, it's a good way to kind of get something done and learn. But in reality, you don't want to go about your business that way for every deal. You want to build a funnel and a, and a system to where investors are coming to you and you have a organized, straightforward process that you're confident in to get your deals funded because we're putting so much capital at risk with every deal we put under contract. We can't afford to, to fail and not close. Mm-hmm. Well, I applaud you for going after a meaningful asset early. And clearly, there's been no turning back just based on what you've acquired in your 2023 goal of $350 million in acquisition. Um, clearly, some lessons have been learned. If, if it was a, of a scramble and a scratch to raise the foreign change for that first purchase, and now you have next year goals that might require you to raise almost $100 million, a lot of money, um, what would... I know, I know there's a lot to unpack there, but you come off of that first raise, clearly some big lessons have been learned that have allowed you to scale. What, what about that would you like to share with us? Yeah, the, the first one was obvious, which was you can't just find a good deal and the money will come. It, it's not, it doesn't work like that. The, the thing I like to say is you have to dig the well before you're thirsty, which obviously is not always possible. You can't, you can't just spend two years developing your uh, investor relationships and then do a deal, right? We've got to be doing deals all the time. So you can't wait for that, but certainly putting in the time up front and building uh, stuff that really won't pay off potentially for a long time, like writing a newsletter or doing a podcast or hosting a meetup, none of that's going to pay off for at least a year, but more likely two years. So, most people are not willing to do that because of that delayed gratification, that long-term thinking, right? People have short-termism. So once we, you know, the lesson we learned was, wow, we need to build something here. We need to take a formal approach here, a dedicated approach. And so that's exactly what we did. And we have been putting in the work to cultivate our, our pipeline, our relationships, our investor communications. That's a, that's a whole other can of worms, which is, you know, you don't want to work really hard to earn an investor's capital only to do something wrong in terms of investor relations or operationally to not want not to not get them to reinvest you know that then that you don't have a sustainable business if that's the case so uh, those are definitely some of the major keys and when you jump into your deals and and the audience can tell about your acumen is just coming right through the microphone um so we'll, we'll we'll jump into when you structure your deals, let's say, you know, I think one lesson I want to highlight real quick is 
Rob just said, don't be, I'm paraphrasing, don't be a deal-first guy. There's, um, I, at times, have been a deal-first guy. Um, I actually probably, I think because I started as like a real estate, not banking or finance, I was just a, like a real estate guy, I have a tendency to, to be, just like Rob said on his first deal, if I find the right deal, people are going to be like swarming me to give me their cash. And, um, and like Rob just said, dig that well before you're thirsty. Make sure people know what you're up to, what you're looking for, long before you're just calling them and trying I mean try, to try and get money on on somebody on the first phone call that maybe knows you but not that way that's a little that's a little tough a little tricky maybe a little less than professional so um, I hope you guys are picking up on what Rob said and by putting in structures um, you know obviously you're hosting a podcast doing the newsletter I really like your website um, your communication and now you're confident in in potentially a hundred million dollar race um, next year so it's just it's really really uh, applaudable so good on you um, let's talk a little bit so the audience knows what are you buying and where? So we're focused on Texas workforce housing, more specifically on Houston and Dallas. So I think focus is, is really valuable and something that can really help you grow faster because of the momentum of being in a single market the expertise that you develop by being in a single market, the relationships that you develop. I think all of that are, are really compelling reasons to, for why you should focus rather than be a generalist and uh, dabble. It's also harder to raise capital when you aren't focused because then you have a less perceived uh, expertise for, for your investor, especially institutional investors. They're really big on that. So some of the things that we've done to make ourselves look and be the, as attractive as possible for investors is this focus thing and also uh, vertical integration. So since our, our portfolio is primarily in Houston, we launched a Houston-based property management company, and that company focuses exclusively on our multifamily assets, and that helps with our operations. It gets investors excited, and we're also in the process of bringing construction in-house right now. So doing more of those thing, uh, things in-house really uh, creates more value and, and helps us perform better and also helps us raise more capital. So it's all kind of a, a virtuous cycle. Do you find that, by tr and I do agree, focus is critical. When I started in, I'll just pick one of the industries I've been in, and it was commercial brokerage. And when I started, it was highly recommended to me to pick an asset class. And even if I end up brokering a strip center and an office and a warehouse and a hotel and an apartment, that may happen, but don't hold yourself out that way. Pick something to concentrate on, um, like the Ferrari salesman. Here, it's Ferraris. Yeah, I might sell 100 F-150s you don't know about, but I'm a Ferrari guy. So my point is, do you find that, so I agree in focus, I totally agree. Do you find that by being, you know, Texas workforce housing in particular, in a particular market, is the well deep enough? Do you ever, do you ever get concerned, like maybe I can't hit my unit count, maybe I need to go broader has that been an issue so thankfully and this is definitely an important consideration when you're thinking about a focus like you're bringing up a good point so for us thankfully houston is a big market houston multifamily is a big market well over six hundred thousand units tons of deal flow so it definitely is big enough if we wanted to try to hit our goals in omaha only that wouldn't be possible so yeah you definitely want to be conscientious to match your goals to your market to your focus and then beyond houston we're looking at dallas dallas is also another major market obviously 
really big growth market and also highly sought after by investors. We're not pitching them something that is a tough, tough sell, generally speaking. Uh, right, a tertiary market in a low growth area would be harder uh, to sell. So I think you kind of pick your poison, though, because if you do choose to be in a really hot market like Phoenix, Denver, Dallas, Tampa, you're going to be competing against a lot of other sponsors. You're going to have higher prices. It's going to be harder to make the numbers work, but it's going to be easier to raise capital because people are so excited about those markets. On the flip side, if you go to a smaller market, a less desired market, the deals might have more attractive numbers on them, but you're going to have a harder time selling the story to investors. So it, there's no easy way. There's no secret market. There's no better way to go. It's uh, you, you just pick your pick your battle. Mm-hmm. Now, for the audience, I'm going to say a couple things very plainly. Obviously, Rob takes money and gives you back more than you gave him. He gives you a rate of return. Maybe it's a pref. Maybe it's like an A class, B class, and a waterfall thereafter. He can talk about that if he likes. Um, but Rob, what are the types of investors? I'm sure you have like the busy, high income W two guy, like your CPA, your physician. They have a lot less time than money, and they can give it to you, and you can outperform the stock market. Um, you know, blindfolded, I bet. And then you've probably got um, when you mentioned the institutional entities. If you could kind of speak to like what your investor base um, looks like, I think that could be helpful. Yeah, certainly we have a lot of high net worth individuals that fall under the categories you described and also a lot of tech employees. So that's a big one. And then I think there's a lot of small business owners or just business owners in general, you know, business owners, uh, if they're successful, they, they make a lot of money. They also are conscientious of their tax burden and they're more willing or capable of being more strategic with their taxes. And so obviously real estate provides tremendous tax benefits. And that's a big reason why some of our investors invest for other investors. It's not the, the main driver, but for some investors, they're investing for the tax benefits first and the economics or the returns second. So that's also some, something to consider. And also another thing which you kind of alluded to as far as being an alternative to the stock market if you're already an entrepreneur with running your own business, you already are accustomed to thinking outside the box. So it's much more easy for you to then think outside the box with your investment strategy and do private real estate investments rather than just put your money in the market, which is obviously a, a very reasonable thing to do, but it's also kind of like the no thinking, just put my money in the market uh, route as well. So, so that would be a second piece is a small business owners. And then finally we have, what I call institutional investors. I mean, traditionally, technically speaking, institutional investors really are pensions, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds. And we don't have any big boys like that yet. But uh, colloquially, when we talk about institutional investors, we're talking about really people that do investing professionally. So it might be a family office where they have you know $100 million that they're investing primarily into real estate, and they're looking to partner with people like us to put their capital to work. It could also look like a, a, a private equity fund, you know, let's say a $500 million private equity fund uh, that similarly, again, they are professionally set up to invest uh, with us and 
you know, they have an infrastructure to analyze the deals, partner with us, keep track of everything. And they themselves often have their own investors. So they're kind of like a pooled entity. So, yeah, so we, we pride ourselves on having a diverse base of investors. We don't want to just have one partner or one type of partner. When you look at a deal, are there certain deals where you're like, oh, this is going to be one where we, we want to go institutional, or this is going to be one where we want like our private high net worth individuals? Um, does that come into play? And, and is it usually based on like just the, the ticket price of admission? What, um, how, how does that shake out? Because I, I, I've heard, obviously, I listen to other people's podcasts, and I'm somewhat in the space as well. If you need, you know, tens of millions of dollars, let's say $10 million fairly quickly, and you're going to contract, um, maybe just the, the time it takes to work through your private network, maybe it's just too slow. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I kind of want to get my mind around what deals might favor what types of investors. Yeah, timing could definitely be a factor. There are institutional groups that that's kind of their thing. They want to add value to you by being able to close quickly. So if you have a deal that has a short fuse and there's some sort of interesting scenario where the buyer can get compensated for moving quickly, right? There's no point. Why would you close a deal fast if you're not getting a discount or some sort of unique story? So obviously investors like that also, if they can be quick and it doesn't really cost them anything and in return they can get better returns, then they'll do that. Uh, but other, other investors aren't set up that way. And certainly depending on your process, it could take longer to syndicate the equity and pass the hat around, host a webinar, raise money through your, your retail investor network. Uh, the other considerations are deal profile. So if you're talking about a deal that is a heavy turnaround deal and may not have any cash flow for the first year or so, that's definitely a harder sell with high net worth investors who are investing and are more sensitive to cash flow. Whereas an institutional fund is primarily solving for IRR, which is a total return metric. They don't really care about cash flow sometimes. Some, maybe sometimes they do, but for the most part, they're benchmarking themselves on internal rate of return. And they don't care if they get cash flow today, tomorrow, as long as the total return makes sense, they, they can get on board. So it's a lot easier for those types of deals uh, with institutional investors. And that's why you see development done primarily by institutional investors and the high barrier to entry because, it's, uh, because of the larger check size. Just because to get you know, retail investors on board with a deal where you've got to build something out of the ground, there's not going to be any cash flow for at least a couple of years, that's just tough. That's tough. Mm -hmm. Something that I would love to overcome because I think, I think the, one of the next phases in our business, which will be amazing, is actually raising development equity. From, re from retail investors. I think that's a huge opportunity. So you see yourself um, getting into the development space in the future? Yep. Yeah, yeah. we have, um, I sit on Jacksonville's planning commission, so we hear rezones, land use changes, PUDs, and um, been doing that for three years. And actually, I was just downtown at a meeting t earlier before this podcast, and there are so many. I, I used to keep track. I really can't anymore. There are so many units in the pipeline, and I kind of have learned which developers are going to bring them out of the ground right away because they might get entitled and not build in this cycle. 
Um, or you got the guys that don't, I mean, they're just waiting with the backhoe um, for those entitlements and for that funding. So we have a lot of multifamily in the pipeline. And, um, and just from, and you, you, I'd like, I'm going to say a few things you can kind of spot check me. Like in Jacksonville, we weren't as hot as like Tampa, Southwest Florida, Miami. Um, and then we started to have some transactions up here. Class A, we had a Class A deal sell in the past 12 months at like 405 a door. And it got a lot of people's attention because we were a market where we hadn't really seen a sale over, we might have hit 300 before that. And you had good products selling for 200. And then you had, you know, I was still buying stuff at 30 a door two years ago, eh, four years ago. Uh, but what I'm saying is all of a sudden you had this like Class A nice kind of institutional grade multifamily over 200 units in a good location. Somebody came in and paid like, I think a sub four cap and everyone's like, whoa. And so obviously the rates were a little bit lower. I mean, they were like half earlier in the year, but that got a lot of attention. And then I can, you can almost feel it, all the development coming into Jacksonville to do these multifamily projects because they hit that cap rate and that price per unit and it, now it pencils out. So I, I know you can't necessarily justify new construction in all markets, but um, do you, are you aimed at maybe new construction in your current Texas markets? Yeah, I think they're decently well suited. I think maybe Dallas is a better uh, development market, but we'll, we'll just have to find out. I think there's pros and cons, like we talked about earlier, as far as markets and strategies, wherever you are. So at the end of the day, we want to stick to suburban multifamily development. So we won't, I mean, I, I'm not sure, but I don't think we'll be building towers anytime soon. I think suburban garden style multifamily is a really great place to be the mm -hmm. class a space uh, for it is is very attractive and the the thing i like about it also uh, about our strategy is we don't want to just build and sell we want to build it and then actually integrate it into our portfolio and hold it long term and i think that gives us a competitive advantage and provides a really cool uh, return profile where you get the initial equity lift from the development piece but then you have the long-term cash flow with a with a low risk asset now when you structure your we let me say this way will you structure or would you anticipate structuring your debt differently with this new construction long let's call it a, a forever hold um what if anything would you change in your structuring to accommodate a ground up deal so i think the the biggest wrinkle that is most interesting is uh, we plan to do a promote crystallization, which is a bit of an advanced deal structure that you don't see all the time, but it really makes holding long-term much more doable. Otherwise, because of the typical structure with a preferred return and a promote, uh, those structures really incentivize a sponsor to sell sooner rather than later because they want to monetize their promote and and put money in their pocket. Uh, so so promote crystallization allows you to not have a sale yet still pay the sponsor out of promote. And the way you do that is you can do it in conjunction with a refi or you don't even have to do it with a refi, but essentially you have to do it in conjunction with an appraisal or with an agreement of value. So you agree on a value and then you crystallize the promote at that valuation 
And what that does is you run that value through a hypothetical sale and you see what the sponsor would make in their promote, which is their performance compensation, if you were to sell at that price. Uh, but instead of selling, you don't, you don't sell and you take what the sponsor would have made through their performance compensation or their promote and you adjust their ownership interest by that amount. So now the sponsor owns more of the deal. So maybe the sponsor started out owning 10% of the deal because they invested, let's say, a million bucks. But then they create value through the development process, and now they've created a million-dollar performance comp. Now they can increase their ownership interest to 20% of the deal. And what happens from there, this is why they call it a crystallization, is the promote freezes and... The preferred return goes away, the promote goes away, and now the investors and the sponsor are equal partners in the deal and get paid just pari pursue on a prorated basis, uh, which really aligns interests and doesn't force or incentivize the sponsor to sell anytime soon. So for us, I think marrying the, the, the development to hold forever strategy with the promote crystallization is just a home run business strategy. And it... Uh, pains me to talk about it because we don't have it yet. Yeah. No, I think it's very smart. And it's kind of like instead of that big pop capital event, now you just have this huge increase in cash flow. It's like you've, you've turned on the faucet, just as you said, at, at that crystallization value. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I've done that either, but I think that does make sense. And, it, and I completely understand how that would allow you to be a long-term hold guy and, and not break the model that you already have going so nicely. Um, do you see any pushback, like if you did a crystallization model, like with institutional investors? Yeah, so it can go both ways. Uh, the, 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 so the issue with the crystallization is manipulating value. So I think the problem with retail investors is they aren't savvy enough or large enough investors in the deal to really complain about the crystallization value, which is good and bad because then you're really just relying on the good grace of the sponsor to do the crystallization at an appropriate price. And it's not totally up to the sponsor's discretion, right? It has to be outlined in a way, in an appropriate way. It has to be based on either a, a couple broker opinions of value uh, or on an appraisal and even appraisals can be manipulated. So it needs to be based on something, but it doesn't make it perfect just because it is based on something, right? So that's kind of point number one. But as you mentioned, the institutional investors, that makes it easier actually because they are savvy and that's the, they, they, they're big boys. They know what they're doing. So when you agree on a value, you agree on a value and it should be fair. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so you could see either, well, essentially all of the private investors that would participate with you now would theoretically do this structure of the crystallization in the future? Well, I think the trouble is on the institutional side is a lot of these institutional investors aren't set up to hold long term because they just their business model is to uh, deliver capital back to their investors. Mm-hmm. So that could be uh, that could be an issue, uh, yeah. which, which is why I think the retail investors are, are better suited because if you find the right investors that are long term thinkers, uh, then you then you have a perfect strategy for them, and uh, that's where it could really work well. I like that. I'm glad you shared that. It's a bit nuanced, and and if the audience doesn't quite follow, it's okay. I mean, it, that's pretty that's pretty granular. But um, I'm glad you shared that. That's very interesting. 
Um, I missed one note earlier, so forgive me. I, I'm going to jump back on one item. It's like 20 minutes old. I meant to ask you, what was the mentorship program? Or I mean, assuming you want to tell us, but um, you've come so far at a young age. Was there a mentorship program that you would um, mention on the show? Yeah, so I, when, when I started out, my business partner and I met through Joe Fairless's mentorship program. Uh, it was a, it was cheaper at the time, which is you know we're obviously very grateful for. Now I think it's more expensive, more exclusive, uh, but I'm sure it's still an awesome opportunity. And then okay. today I'm a part of the uh, Hunter. Uh, I'm a part of Hunter Thompson's Raise Masters uh, Mastermind, which I think is uh, is one of the best for sure. It's just it's very active and very tailored exactly to my focus is, which is you know raising more capital. All right, guys. So that gives us two two resources to look at: the Joe Fairless Mentorship Program Rob started with, and on the capital side, the Hunter Thompson uh, Mastermind. Did it have another name, or is that right, Hunter Thompson Mastermind? It's 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 actually Raise Masters. Raise Masters. Okay. All right. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but um, are you a big proponent or endorser of masterminds? I think if you're prepared to to take advantage of them, they can be extremely valuable. Yeah. Okay. I think it is what you put in, you know? Um, right. Yeah. I've done a lot of things small and bootstrapped and my, my story's fairly, fairly different than yours. And I have, um, you've created a, a large operating business with big holdings and, and, and a, a real team where mine's been more me, a partner, a friend. Um, I've been in real estate a long time, um, opportunistic one-off deals. I might do a storage lot, I might do an apartment, I might entitle some land, and it's probably gonna be stuff that I have a competitive advantage on that no one else saw. So it's a little bit different. But um, but I love you know speaking to guys like yourself that have the more, I mean, I'll say, it's, it's a more sophisticated, focused model. You mentioned focus earlier being a, a big criteria. So although we're different style investors, I have a lot of respect for what, uh, what you do because you're really operating a large a business. Um, and the investor relations side, I've never even really had to worry about that. So, um, Rob, I think you have, correct me if I'm wrong, you're working on, uh, on putting out a new product to the market. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're coming out with my second book called Structuring and Raising Debt and Equity for Real Estate. So definitely a bit more of a experienced topic. And it builds on my first book. My first book, as we discussed, was about analyzing multifamily. And then this book is a bit of a step two where it, after you've analyzed the property now, how do you actually go about structuring the deal and acquiring it? And this new book I'm excited about because it's, it's a bit less niche. Uh, so the first book did really well because it was so niche. It was multifamily underwriting, and there wasn't any books out there like that. Uh, and I think people who read it who weren't exactly in multifamily could still get value out of it for sure. But it was, it was specific to multifamily at the end of the day. Whereas this new book, you know, I'm using my multifamily experience to you know, write the book. But it is a broader topic about just structuring and raising capital for real estate generally. So I'm excited to see where that goes. You know, does it sell more? Does it sell less? Does it... 
you know, because it's less niche, are people less excited about it or does it make it more accessible to more people? So I'll be interested to see the, the response on it. And it is also a bit more of a challenging topic, uh, believe it or not, because definitely the first book was uh, not a beginner book. I, I, that was kind of the, one of the bigger criticisms I got f- from the first book, which was, you know, pretty helpful, but also kind of tough if you're not already decently versed in some of the basics. And so I think this book will also maybe get some of that criticism as well. But we tried tried our best to, you know, help uh, help out the beginners. But I think for me, the the beginning stuff is just I'm just not passionate about it. I think it's more accessible. You can go online and learn the beginner stuff anywhere. So I like to try to I try at least to talk about things that you don't really hear uh, much else elsewhere. You know, I'm really enjoying your perspective on this on this interview today because, you know, I'm holding your book. I read it and I think you make a good point. Um, I did not struggle with your book. I found it to be, I actually think I read it. I might've read it in one sitting. Now bear in mind, it would also go really well as like a reference, not a manual, but obviously people certainly tab this and go like back and forth from your Excel model to this book. But I remember getting into this and early on being like, Oh, Rob is going like straight for the neck. Like this does not have fluff. It goes right into uh, terms like you don't waste any words in this book. Let's see. I have it in my hand. I think it's like 96 pages. Oh, 109 with the back with the stuff in the back. I mean, this could have been like 500 pages if you wanted to get verbose. I mean, so I, I respect and applaud you for keeping it tight and condensed and somebody could grab this and tab it and have your model on another screen. I'm sure that's like what everybody's doing. And, and make a dent in learning, especially at your own pace. I told you I was a history teacher trying to learn like hotel, Excel, discounted cash flow models. And I had my, I printed out all the Excels like onto, well, onto paper and I bound them. And then I went to my boss and I had like highlights and notes and stickies about like what this stuff was. And then I kept that at my desk like for years, I mean, three years easily. And then I had the model. So what I was kind of doing was like building myself a little manual to get through it. So I think it's genius. And I applaud you for going like straight to the direct, more advanced content. And, um, and you're right, there are a lot of resources for like, budgets, mindset, uh, wellness, and I actually I love all that stuff. But I also like the fact that you're here cutting like to the next level and beyond. Um, and I could see where writing a book on the debt and equity side could be tricky. You know, there's also a lot of movement in debt and equity. I don't know. Obviously, you've tackled that because you've written the book. But, you know, underwriting has some like tried and true principles where debt and equity is you just talked about crystallizing and promote. I, I, I will confess I'd never heard of that before you said it. I understood it. But that's just another example of like something maybe a little bit new or novel. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and it only earned itself a, a slight, a very small section in the book. And there's tons of other stuff that I just didn't cover because it is a much broader topic. Uh, and it also is, even though underwriting is an art, it's not just a black and white science. Uh, it, it is pretty straightforward and you can kind of just lay out the, the guide, like you said, uh, kind of a manual. Whereas with structuring debt and equity, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder, diff- depends on your strategy, depends on your goals and, and risk tolerance, all sorts of stuff. So it is much harder to, to be as comprehensive. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a very fun topic because it is ever changing. 
that's that's what keeps the business interesting, as I'm sure uh, you agree, right? With whether it be different strategies or just different times in the market, different opportunities. Oh, 100 percent. I think why I'm so part of why I'm so addicted to real estate is there's so many different ways to have success and with like different people, different mindsets, different skill sets. Um, anyone that's been listening to the show, I mean, I, I come off a little bit all over the place because my background is brokerage, legal and appraisal. And I've been in the same market for, you know, 16 years. So the people that I know, I could jump into like boat and RV or retail or hotel. Am I going to do all those deals like back to back? Not necessarily, but so I'm meandering in a totally different way, usually through like relationships and networks. And my eye for value and margin is really good because that's just what I've been up to. You're on this totally different spectrum working with institutions that don't know anything about Ian Brown and raising amounts of money I've never even attempted. I don't even know if I if, if I ever will. So um, what's beautiful is there's room for there's room for all of us in this industry and all these different paths to complete financial independence and, and well beyond. Um, I hope people understand that with the show and they hear the diversity of guests, the diversity of my story versus some of the guests. I hope everybody sees this just means there's like a lot of different paths towards finding your finding your way within real estate investing. Well, Rob, I'd like to jump into what I'm calling coach's case study, where we jump into a deal. Um, we, we run through some criteria. What I what I typically break it down. I couldn't find an F for the end, but it's find it, fund it, fix it. And then I just say exit or hold. I got to find an, an F word for that. But how'd you find your deal? How'd you fund it? How'd, how'd you fix it? And then what'd you do if, if there's any takeaways? So if you have one that you don't mind diving in for us, um, that'd be great. Sure. Let's do, let's do a deal that we closed last summer. So it's, it's over a year now that we've owned it. Uh, so yeah, so we, how we found it was through a broker that we have a pretty good relationship with. We, were uh, actually, I believe at the time, somewhere around then, we were selling a property with them. So we're kind of in their good graces and obviously building up a good network and reputation in the market. So we got an off-market look at this deal and we put an initial bid. It wasn't so easy. You know, the deal kind of started getting some traction. Some other people were approaching the seller for it as well. So in the end, we uh, we kind of pushed ourselves and raised the bid, which looking back on it, obviously very thankful that we did and, and did buy the deal because it is a great deal and something that we uh, definitely wanted. So we pushed ourselves on the bid, got got the deal. To fund the deal, uh, this deal was pretty straightforward. Uh, it was very financeable. It's, I believe, about 260 units a uh, bit of an older property, which can present a a hurdle, but it was a good size, well located, and a lot of value. It had a good cap rate on it. I don't remember what it was going in, but it the cap rate there was enough in place income that we were able to put a Freddie Mac floating rate loan on it. And so, for those that aren't familiar, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are agency lenders that are very competitive for permanent debt for multifamily. Uh, it's because you know the, the U.S. government wants to help with the initiative to provide uh, affordable housing, and so that's why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac can provide some of the best rates, and they're very competitive. So 
So with a with a Freddie Mac floating rate loan, I think the, the cool wrinkle about that is you get a ten year loan, which is awesome awesome to have because it reduces your risk. You know, shorter term on the loan, the more risky it is. So with a ten year loan, it's it's very low risk, and then. The downside usually of having a 10-year loan is you're locked in for a long time. And that's not who we are. We're opportunistic sellers. We don't want to be locked in. So with a floating rate loan, you get the benefit of the 10-year term. But also, because you're floating, you have a very easy, simple, cheap prepayment penalty. You're not locked into yield maintenance or defeasance, which are complicated, expensive calculations to, to prepay your loan. So, so with the Freddie Mac floating rate loan, we had a great starting interest rate because floating rates were very low back then. Now they're moving higher uh, quite a bit, so our cash flow is getting reduced. But that's, that's the decision we made up front. We made the decision to have interest rate risk uh, in return for flexibility on our sale. So, so that's the debt side. On the equity side, we put the equity together really through our uh, high net worth investors. And so we syndicated $9 million of equity. The really cool uh, wrinkle for this deal was, I believe it was our first deal where we implemented our 1031 exchange process. And ever since then, we've done every single deal with a 1031 except with one, I believe. So. And what that means is, I'm sure most people are familiar with 1031 exchanges, which is where you can sell a property and then roll over the funds from that sale into a new property and not pay any taxes. Huge, huge strategy. The, the, the cool part about our strategy is we're actually able to let our investors sell a property and then roll it into one of our deals. So if someone is owning real estate actively, and then wants to sell it and not pay any taxes and exchange it into a passive investment where they don't have to do any work anymore, we make that possible. And that's pretty rare, uh, especially because the people that do do it in our industry usually want a very high minimum. They'll only accept a 1031 exchange if you're rolling over $5 million, let's say. But we do exchanges as small as half a million. So that really brings in us a, a lot of investor capital to us. And so that deal, we brought in a few exchanges for, you know, maybe 600,000, 500,000, a million, and that helped bring in some additional capital. And uh, that, that was the kickoff of that strategy. So yeah, so, so the equity side was great on that deal with the 1031 wrinkle. And uh, so what are we at? We at find it, fund it. And, and now we're at fix it. What did you do to this beauty? So it was a bit of an older asset, like I mentioned. The property had, uh, I'd say, mostly dated interiors. And so the business plan in this deal is to renovate the interiors, add in washer-dryers, uh, amenitize the exterior. There's definitely opportunity, but uh, some of the exterior was neglected. So we uh, added a dog park. We are also There was an unused clubhouse kind of area, which we're turning into... Like a uh, like a, you know like a usable clubhouse that you could rent out and have private events in for the residents and stuff like that. So uh, what we did is we pulled the residents after we bought the property to find out what they would want from this space. You know, do they want it to be a fitness room? Do they want it to be uh, an events room? So I think that's a really good way to go. 
is to actually poll the residents. That way you know you're providing, hopefully, uh, the most value, uh, you know, the highest and best use uh, for your residents. So, yeah, pretty straightforward business plan on that deal. And obviously we, we bought it at the right time, and fundamentals are really strong uh, in our in our markets that we're in in Texas. So rent growth is doing really well. So even if we, uh, let's say, got it wrong on our business plan, you know, renovating the units was a bad idea, let's say, and you don't get higher rents for it, or adding a dog park doesn't improve the property in any way, uh, the growth itself is so strong that you know, the numbers would still uh, you know, be very compelling. Mm-hmm. And on uh, the exit or hold, obviously, I think you still have it, correct me if I'm wrong. And what is the play um, looking forward on that one? Yeah, so like I mentioned before, it, it really does start with the debt. I think debt is such an important piece of the deal. And the fact that we have the flexibility with the 10-year loan, we could hold it long-term or we could choose to exit early. So I think for us, we're, like I mentioned, we're opportunistic sellers. So if the market is a, if we do find ourselves with an attractive opportunity to exit, we're able to meet or exceed our investors' return expectations, then that is exactly what we'll do. So it could be an exit as early as two years into the deal. It could be three, four, five years into the deal. Uh, But we've got the downside protection of the long-term loan, which is important. And then also another thing to potentially look into is a refi. If we create more value or if interest rates are better uh, in the market than what we have on our loan itself, then we can refi out of the loan and choose a new loan product to take advantage and could mean that we would hold for a bit longer, but have better cash flow or something like that. Mm -hmm. So those are all the considerations. I think at the end of the day, you have to make sure that even if you have an idea for what is best for the property, you know, you need to listen to your investors. All right. That was great. And the last thing I have is biggest lesson or takeaway on that deal. If there, if there was one for you. Hmm. Well, I think the biggest takeaway was the 1031 exchange. It was something that we really wanted to get off the ground and finally getting it done on a deal was, was awesome. And it was definitely even bigger than we had thought because there's just a ton of demand for 1031 exchanges, uh, for, for our deals. Um, it's probably a topic for a whole nother podcast, but is there a is there a limit to how many of these like ten thirty ones you can catch? Um, I know I know it's a bit nuanced, but it, can you take as many as you want into your entity? How does that look? Yeah, it's all dependent on the lender. The lender is the source of complication for these deal structures, so we vet out that situation with the lender up front so that we don't find ourselves down the road having a, having a bad situation. So lenders typically will allow, you know, three to 10, uh, I would say is kind of the range. Gotcha. And, um, I think I know the answer, but I'll let you, was that, um, that loan, was it a recourse or non-recourse debt structure? Non-recourse. Okay. So, so for the audience, as you get into some of these larger multifamily deals, your your options for non-recourse, non-personally guaranteed debt uh, become much more readily available. Um, good luck finding that on a duplex, but you can most definitely find it on 200. So it's it's something that's counterintuitive, but it's also a benefit to moving up the, uh, the ladder. All right, we're going to jump. Rob, if you're ready, we're going to jump into the Coach Brown 
breakdown. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> um, what is the most impactful real estate or business book you've read recently? I would probably say uh, Raising Capital for Real Estate by Hunter Thompson, who's also the the manager of that mastermind, Raise Masters, uh, is, is really just so much information you have to... Like if you read that book and all of a sudden you've created a huge to-do list of all these things that you're not doing that you need to do if your goal is to, to raise capital and, and build a uh, raising capital machine. Mm -hmm. All right. What do you do when, in your free time when you're not smashing these uh, professional goals? Uh, I'd say my, my biggest hobbies are gym-related, so I, am, I try to do yoga a couple times a week. I'm really into boxing right now, so I try to do that a couple times a week. I've always been in the gym working out, lifting weights, uh, but I'm getting more into more functional stuff rather than just picking heavy weights up and down. Nice. I had... Um... Actually, I don't think we've dropped the episode as of this recording, but uh, Sterling White was on, and he was talking about boxing, and we went on this like long tangent on that episode. I've gotten back into jiu-jitsu. I did it eight years ago for a couple years, stopped, and I just got back on the mats in the spring. There's something about having like a combative sport to balance out all of these spreadsheets and negotiations and noise and legal um, and problems. Just get in there and hit or grapple. It, it's a serious release. All right, I'm with you there. Um, for the audience, what is your, your best yield coach point of advice for these eager entrepreneurs? I would say that uh, you have to, I'd say building relationships and leveraging technology to do so and being, you know, the, the longer term that you can think, the, the more successful you can be. People, wh whoever thinks the longest term can has the competitive advantage. So... If you, if you think about doing a strategy that won't pay off for a long time, it likely is a very powerful strategy that you just have to stick with and, and know that it'll pay off. I love that. All right. Well, lastly, where can people connect and learn more about you or invest with you? Yeah, we, you can learn more about myself and our company, Lone Star Capital, on our website, lscre.com. On our website, we've got the free underwriting model giveaway. You've got a link to the books now. And, uh, and some more great resources and also our a way to get in touch to learn more about investing with us. And then if you want to reach out to me directly, the best way to do that is on LinkedIn. I post every day on LinkedIn, so I'm active there, and you can feel free to connect with me and message me there. Wonderful. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. We, had, we did have a bit of a nuanced conversation, and I really loved it. I hope you guys did too. If you know somebody that would benefit from this, go ahead and forward this episode. If you're watching it on YouTube, send them the link. Let's go ahead and grow organically together. All right, guys, well, for this, uh, for this is the end of the Yield Coach Show, and this is Coach Brown signing off and reminding everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Yield Coach out.